Hey, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners. I'm very excited to be announcing our very first Hui Investor Tour. I'm taking you guys out to Atlanta, Birmingham, and Huntsville. Uh, check out some properties, meet some people I work with. And uh, for the most part, just get you guys comfortable with the class B and C locations out there. I think a lot of you guys are going to be pleasantly surprised in what you get for a hundred grand out there uh, that can rent for potentially a thousand dollars. So it's be taking place on July 21st to the 24th. And our pricing is going to be going up after the early bird special. It's going to be a little bit of price break. If you guys want to bring your spouse mastermind members, if you guys haven't heard about that, uh, simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey, you guys will be getting a 30% discount. Check out the website, simplepassivecashflow.com slash tour 2019. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey guys, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please go to the website, sign up for that news, new newsletter that I'm doing. I don't know if it's going to be every other week or every other month or every month. I definitely want to add some content with uh, different data I've been reading, different reports, and a little bit update of what I've been up to and what I'm seeing in the market, hearing from a lot of people that I talk to. Again, also there's a free, very short coaching calls that I do just to get to know each and every single one of you investors in the Huido Pipeline Club. And one of them today, we're talking to Jason Ricks. You there, Jason? Yeah. Hey, Lane. How you doing? Good, good. Yeah, we had this intro call a while back ago and kind of expressed interest that you know be willing to come on here you know, talk about your story a little bit and i think you're going to bring up a very interesting point of done some single family home stuff you, or you've kind of done that beginning stages moving on to that bigger what's what your mindset is and a lot of you have been talking to have kind of done a few single family homes you're looking at the syndication stuff and you know kind of looking make the next step you know like i always say you, you usually get the most out of you know talking with peers and set up a podcast with um, some big celebrity that owns a gazillion billion multifamily apartments. Yeah, you know, we're going to kind of run this th- through like a coaching call. I know you guys don't know Jason. Jason, maybe introduce yourself, background, your, you know, yourself and your work history. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Lane. Well, I started in the industry in 2008, was a commercial real estate, just basically a broker, focused on office, retail, and industrial leasing primarily, and then kind of dabbled into investment sales and at representation, but really kind of cut my teeth on leasing from about 2008 to 2012. And around that time was obviously a really interesting time in the market. So a lot of our strategy at that point, I worked for a boutique firm. We ended up going after a lot of bank REO business. And I started interacting a lot with these asset managers. The thing that kind of drove me away from the brokerage world was really just the inability to have control of the deal. So a lot of times you're subject to what the bank can do from a, you know, a tenant improvement allowance standpoint or the length of a term that they can sign or the creditworthiness of a tenant. And around 2012, I lost probably... I want to say three large transactions that would have put a sizable portion of income into my pocket. And I think when that happened, my, my whole kind of mind just kind of shifted over and saying, okay, how can I get closer 
to my goal, which is eventually being a landlord and, and being in more control of the asset and in the deal. And so asset management was kind of the next, uh, I guess, progressive path. Right. More steady income in, for uh, for like a W-2 wage earner. Right? And you, but in your case, yeah. it was more sales and commissions. Absolutely. And I also realized that there was like a, there was a 3D picture that I was missing, right? So all I cared about was getting the lease done. Management is critical, the construction, the development phase, the financing of, of deals. And so I wanted to get uh, a more comprehensive view of real estate in general. And so that took my career to uh, Dallas, Texas for a company called uh, BH Properties. And this individual out of Santa Monica owns about, I want to say, just just shy of a billion dollars worth of uh, real estate. No partners. Has a big line of credit with Wells Fargo and, and Bank of America. And goes around and buys really, really distressed value-add assets, primarily portfolio acquisitions. And so, for example... We went after and bought, you know, when Walmart went from a regional store to a national superstore, they had all this real estate left over. They had all these kind of entitlements and ECRs associated to them. And so I would go in, we would buy these things in bulk, right? Maybe eight at a time. And we would try to subdivide the space into three or four different tenants. Let's say like a tractor supply, a planet fitness, you know, big lots. Uh, And then I would try to uh, put a pad which is just a small little, little exterior retail building that, that's closer to the frontage. We would try to incorporate that and just other value-add strategies across the portfolio and had a blast doing it. I mean, really tough. The guy was a total grinder. He runs a lot of people ragged. <laughs> but, you know, when do you get a chance to work one-on-one with someone who's basically a billionaire and, and a self-made one at that and learned a ton got the portfolio to a really healthy place in a wise, I could kind of see that Dallas was plateauing a little bit in their market, which uh, I was wrong in that assessment. And so was he, but he decided to, from kind of more of an estate planning standpoint, uh, go after an acquisition, a ground lease in Manhattan where three hotel sites are at. And so in order to get the capital that he needed, he had to liquidate a lot of my portfolio. And at that time I saw the writing on the wall when you're in asset management, a lot of what you get comped on is is a bonus with an NOI kicker. And when your NOI goes down or it's uh, you're left with kind of the trash of your portfolio, you can only bang your head against the wall so many times before you realize it's it's time to move on. Right. So then the, the switch happened where you're like, oh, I got to be a real estate investor. Kind yeah. of started doing the reading, uh, you know, podcasts. What, how long did it kind of take you to, you know, kind of find myself? Sure. I, you know, I came across a book. I was really kind of confused. I was, you know, mid twenties trying to figure things out. Eckhart Tolle wrote a book about the power of now and just kind of the ego and understanding my big why. And it kind of got me recentered on the idea of like what I want to do with my life. When I kind of got in that headspace, I was able to allow other kind of sources to come and help me and, you know, bigger pockets, folks like yourself, and just talking to other like-minded people, reading books, taking my CCIM classes, going to ICSC events, taking those classes, it really just kind of started dominoing and the momentum just continued to build. I realized that, you know, what I'm trying to achieve is, you know, like for a lot of us, this financial independence really is started on the equity side and, and in the ownership side and, and getting rid of that, not for like the time being, but, uh, you know, ultimately getting away from my job and, and kind of creating my own path for wealth. So 
it, it just, it really kind of took off, read a ton of books, still continue to read a ton of books. Yeah. I mean, podcasts when I'm working out, when I'm driving, talking to other like-minded folks and really just changing my mindset. Yeah. So, you know, something on these calls that I usually try and, you know, I usually have you guys tell your story, but you know, what I'm listening for is the three big components, the time, money, and knowledge slash network. You know, what are the big resources you have to work with? You know, all this here at Jason, he's, he's got a busy full-time job. Luckily it's kind of in the industry that real estate investing is kind of plays in a lot of the same players. So there's a lot of uh, dual, dual actions there, you know, talking to the same people. Money-wise, you know, it took, took you a while. I mean, it's not like you were rolling in dough yeah. starting out. So, and then also knowledge slash network. And I think that that's, you know, I always try and look for your guys' competitive advantage and kind of say, hey, dude, like you're in the industry. You obviously know the stuff more than the average cat. Or, you know, hey, you're, you're a dentist and you're in a lot of dentist circles. Mm-hmm. You know, it should be easy for you to raise some capital for some of your deals. I think in the beginning, most people have some money, not much time, and very little network slash non, but the network slash knowledge will grow. I think you came at it a little bit differently. You had definitely a little bit insider knowledge that you at least knew the components of it, but you didn't know how the investors really navigated the space. Absolutely. But yeah, maybe take us a look when, you know, your, your first actions as an investor, you know, picking up that first rentals and going down that yeah. road. Well, you know, I, I really started off, I thought the answer was index fund investing and, and putting all my chips into that basket. And, and, and I read a whole bunch of smart folks, you know, David Swinson, the Yale Endowment guy, you know, Ray Dalio, Warren Buffett, obviously, you know, Tony Robbins came out with the book. And, and so my first kind of attempt was really just, hey, look, let's put these in, in tax advantage accounts and then have a separate brokerage account and really start digging into stocks. And so I owned a ton of REITs. I still own some REITs and some other stocks. I, I think what ultimately kind of changed my idea around stock investing was really this book, uh, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And, and you, you know, as I kind of dug into that, I realized that the path for me, to, <laughs> you know, in, index funds investing and just having that stable 6% to 8% return over, over the life of your portfolio. It, for a lot of people, that's a great idea. But for me, it's not. it wasn't really going to, allow me to get free and, and for my big why. So really started looking into single family homes as a way to invest and, and duplexes as a way to invest. And then simultaneously, I was trying to make my wife happy. And, you know, she had sacrificed a lot. We were living in kind of a, a smaller apartment complex and ultimately wouldn't want to buy our own asset and to, to live in. And so bought our first single family home about a year and a half ago and really just enjoyed the process have continued to actively engage kind of local agents here. Uh, I have a guy that I really go through and kind of creating my own system of, of funneling deals towards me for duplexes and, and single family. And in Austin, Texas right now, it's, the market's a little overheated. So to find that kind of diamond in the rough, you're having to look at a ton of, ton of properties and you're having to make kind of offers that make sense based on your numbers. And unfortunately right now, it's, it's just so frothy that it's kind of forced me to kind of a reevaluate or reassess kind of what I'm doing in the short term. That's when these syndicated opportunities kind of presented themselves and looking at them from a truly, you know, cash flow standpoint plus, you know, upside. I thought it was it was smarter when evaluating both comparables to say, okay, 
you know, I may be able to find a really great duplex in Austin and it can generate this type of cash flow. And then I can look at the syndication. And it felt like for me, given the amount of time that I have to focus on my, on my day job, that the syndication was, was the clear path, at least for the first asset that I ended up buying into. Have you ever listened to a podcast or been in a seminar and too afraid to ask a slightly personal question? Our mastermind will have an intimate feel where people are going through the program together and at their own pace if needed, in order to foster friendships. When I was learning and paying thousands of dollars for masterminds and mentorships, the network, however hokey pokey as it sounds, was a big part of it. What happens in the mastermind stays in the mastermind. We'll use the bi-weekly webinar sessions to dissect concepts with real-life examples. Hear how someone else might implement something like infinite banking concept on a hot seat session. Our group will attract thought leaders to meet just with our exclusive group. We can get FaceTime and ask individual questions. Why? Because our group will be people who put their money where their mouth is and go out and make things happen, as opposed to your local REI club which is traditionally just a bunch of tire kickers and some sharks. Simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey to learn more. Right. And I think a lot of guys come to that realization. They do this pro and con chart, you know, and they put single family in one column, multifamily syndication in the other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. Like, Every, every way, I think, or most ways, syndications are probably better and multifamily is better than single family. But I, I think what most people don't realize, especially new, new guys, is like you've got to go through the lessons in the single family mm-hmm. to kind of know the bullshit from what's fact when you kind of go in as a limited partner into a syndication or even be an operator yourself in a big multifamily. I mean, you definitely want, want to be making the mistakes with the small stuff mm-hmm. than all the big stuff. So, uh, I mean, I, I have this kind of rule, and I think we talked about it you know, I, I usually ask, you know, what, at the end of the year, how much money do you put away at the bank? Because what I'm trying to figure out is how much sort of cash flow you have, you know, with your day job and your rental properties, if you have any, usually the threshold is about $30,000 or more is kind of, you know, you should probably gra- gravitate more towards the syndication, the limited partner route. And mm-hmm. if you're less than that, you need to kick it in the butt a little bit and get some single family home rentals. That's, you know, so you can, you know, two examples are like a doctor, doctor makes 300 grand a year. They've got a lot of expenses. Yeah. But you know, usually they can save 50 to hundred grand of that salary. And uh, for them, it makes total sense, right? Going to syndications they are very extreme on that spectrum. But when I started as an engineer with like zero net worth, you know, I was saving 10, 20 grand a year out of my salary, but I just didn't have that net worth. So it's a combination of that annual cash flow at the end of year. How much money do you save at the bank? And then how much liquidity? And I feel like you need to have about a hundred grand of liquidity to make the jump to go into the big stuff. No, that's a great point. I, um, my situation's a little unique. I try to put away about 50% of our income every year. I try to save at this point, just aggressively save and play the fun game of having my min account and seeing what my cash flow is uh, each month and, and really kind of bird dogging that, coming up with a game plan annually with my wife that we can kind of commit to and, and make sure that she's happy and that I'm happy. And it's it, the process has been actually pretty, pretty amazing because what's happened is I've cut out a lot of the waste in my life and, and same with my wife. So continuing to save the one tricky part about my situation 
is we're trying to invest about 100K a year. 50 of that per year is in the form of equity with Amley, my current company that I work for. And that's, we're a multifamily developer. We're basically a private REIT owned by Morgan Stanley. And I think the the fund itself is about $22 billion. And I think Amley's cap is probably around like $6 billion. So, which is crazy to think about. I Even when I mentioning those numbers, it's just ridiculous. But it what it's, what it's really done is that's, that's illiquid. So that money essentially goes into an account, compounds, which is great, but then I have to pay taxes on it or phantom income tax yeah. is a big burden. So I, you know, I, I say that I save around hundred K a year, but in reality, when you take out the tax cut, it's closer to about 70. Yeah. And that's cool because like, you know, it's there, it's in the back of your head. And then, you know, right now you're still kind of learning. Yeah. So what, you know, just a lot of people have like that Amazon stock or the Microsoft stock, you know, mm-hmm. what I'm like is go get some single family homes or go buy some syndications now. And then when in three, five years, when you quit your job or you normally move jobs, you cash that stuff out and now you're supercharged. That's like your, your, uh, your juice to get out of the rat race right there. That's kind of like me cashing out my pension, all $10,000 of it when it was time to cash it out. It was, you know, nice nice extra money to put to work. Yeah, it got to be super disciplined, right? <laughs> but that's, I mean, that that's kind of, it's locked up for you, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. It's kind of nice because it's like a forced savings account. And then all of a sudden when it's not, it's like, oh my God. Yeah, but that absolutely. And I think your site more so than anyone others, it just kind of spoke to me. You had a few diagrams on your site that, that really kind of attracted me to kind of uh, reaching out to you and kind of talking in more detail. But no, I think that game plan is, is dead on. And I think it makes a ton of sense. And now it's, it's, you know, for me, I continue to, to try to find opportunities, but uh, really evaluating these private equity deals. I think your analogy was perfect, by the way, of like playing roulette, right? I mean, a lot of times you're going you're gonna to do fine, but uh, every once in a while you're going to land on the double zero and, and, you know, you could lose a lot. So you have to kind of evaluate that risk on, on each deal that you look at. Right. And that what, what that specifically means is like there are some shysters walking around out there doing these private equity deals and it's private equity. You know, it's kind of the wild, wild west, but I, but what I believe is if you mitigate, you know, you go around, do your due diligence properly, you kind of join some mastermind groups, build friendships along the way so that you can, as a group, sniff out the bad players out there, then that's a way of mitigating that double zero slot on the roulette. And if you eliminate that or bring the chances of that way down, then, hey, I'm willing to go in on a lot of deals, you know, just don't put all your money into one deal, but you know, kind of create what I'm trying to do these days is I'm in about seven, eight deals now and to get it to about dozen or 15 deals. And you think about it just at 10% cash flow, that many deals at $50,000 a piece. I mean, that's, that's nice, right? No, it's absolutely. It's great. Yeah. And, and to kind of, you know, people, your grandpa used to talk about a CD ladder. What I'm trying to build is like a syndication ladder Yep. where, you know, they kind of go in piece by piece intermittently. And then, you know, a lot of these deals are like five-year deals. So if you kind of space them out, they kind of hatch at different points in the cycle. And that is pretty neat, right? Especially when you get, obviously, the, the big capital event, whether it's a refi or, you know, they're exiting and, and disposing of the asset. That's got to be a great pop. And I've done, I've done kind of a brief analysis on what that could look like. And I'm, sh- I'm sure you've kind of done the same thing. And it's compounding interest, man, and just the growth there. It's, it's, pretty amazing when you add up the math and you do it again and again but 
yeah, I think you're, that's a great strategy. I mean, the fact that you've got 50,000 coming your way from other assets is, is tremendous. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's the, the best way of doing things, but you know, I'm the same guy probably about, if you asked me three, four years ago, I would have said, yeah, I'm going to go pick up 20, 30 single family homes. Obviously the strategy has changed, but mm-hmm. that's what it is today. And yeah, <laughs> continually evolving. We'll see. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Uh, look, I, and I know you bought in Seattle too, and I can tell you, I work in Seattle. Uh, we were in like South Lake Union and Ballard and Friedman and stuff. It, man, it's super hot over there too. So, you know, those single families don't come without risk, without a doubt. So, but no, I think you're on, you're on a great path, man. And you're working full time. It sounds like you like your job too, which is kind of unique. A lot of people just can't wait to get out of it. For me, it's not really, uh, you know, the path forward. At some point, it's going to stop. But like for you, it's it's definitely something that, you know, you're taking your industry context further, right? Like, you know, you want to kind of create a lifestyle where you, you kind of play the broker side, what, one, two days a week or something like that? Or yeah, like no, that. no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm essentially doing it now, right? So it's, you know, I'm, I'm really responsible for the performance of the asset on whether it's leasing, construction, you know, early on in development phase, management, reporting to, to senior management. So I love doing it, but I just want to do it <laughs> selfishly. I want to do it for my own assets because I see the power of it. I've been been around it long enough to kind of understand how things work. And really, you know, I thought about it, Lane, you mentioned something to me. It's like, you know, what's my competitive advantage? You know, where can I add the most value? I know it's probably not super popular right now, but the retail space for me is primarily where my experience lies you know i you know i've done malls or basically what amazon's kind of going after right yeah you know it's there's there's so many different subtypes of retail and i know there's a lot of negative headlines but i try to put in internet resistant groups or try to find groups that have a really good omni-channel experience right the folks that that have and we're actually seeing this like bonobos or companies like Asparos that I've worked with or mod mod cloth and it's like hey their basis their foundation is actually online sales and they use the brick and mortar location as kind of another way to cultivate their their base of uh, customers. Right. And they kind of build their brand with that physical presence. Yeah, absolutely. And some of these brands are, you know, I think Walmart just purchased Bonobos and Montclaw. So <laughs> yeah. pretty good credit behind them, right? From a default yeah. standpoint. Right. As an investor right now, you're on both tracks. You're still looking around for deals, although it's sparse. And then you're kind of looking for jumping in as a limited partner and some big syndications too. What's kind of your, is, it, is that kind of your game plan for the next couple of years or at what point do you kind of make the switch? Yeah, I, I was doing the math. Um, I think in the next three to four years, I'll have enough saved with equity with Amelie and hopefully I can have enough syndications somewhere in the lines of, of what you just mentioned. And, but also focusing more on the syndications on the retail side. So I can really kind of understand the ins and outs of that and work with some really good operators. And then eventually at that point, be able to step out on my own and kind of have a firm foundation to build upon, to hit the ground running, so to speak. Do you ever think about like, you know, you get the 12 to 15 syndications and maybe you don't even need to do the, the retail space stuff as a broker? Maybe. You know, I've thought about it. I, I, you know, like I just enjoy it. I mean, at the end of the day, I just, I, I'm kind of really passionate about it. I, my wife and I like talking about retail. It's, I don't know why. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think we want to mention it, right? Like a lot of your day is just kind of just going out, having lunch, just bullshitting with people. Right. And it's kind of fun. 
Yeah, totally. And I'm talking about deals with folks and there's something really cool about taking something, you know, that may be old and decrepit, right? Like an old shopping center and, and giving it a little bit of lipstick and, and changing it and just really kind of changing the community that, that it's in. And, and each one of these tenants is, you know, they have their own life, they have their own story too. And just, it's being around really cool, like-minded folks. It's just neat to hear their stories too. So it being a part of it. Yeah. And that's, a, that's a question I had, like, you know, I had an idea of being a commercial broker here in Hawaii because quite frankly, nobody even owns a hundred units out here. They're just salespeople. So if I kind of came in and it's, you know, I, you know, I think I know a thing or two about how to underwrite these deals because I bought them. You know, do you see like the, the people you interact with the buyers and sellers, what, what would they say if they, they saw some of the deals you were going in, you know, these 90% occupied, multifamilies with some value add opportunity and the market rents, you know, is this, is it new to them or how do they view those kinds of investments? Yeah, no, I mean, I reach out to everyone and, and you got to be careful who you take your advice from. Right. But a lot of guys just have a lot of money, right? They don't care. They're like, yeah. that's small peanuts. Totally. It, you know, I, I have some really good contacts on uh, the multifamily front, obviously Emily being a multifamily uh, developer. I reached out to a couple guys that, that I really admire and respect in that space. And, you know, my due diligence is a little different too. With my CCIM background, I do my own modeling, essentially, basically create my own sensitivity analysis to where, hey, look, worst case scenario, I want to know what my downside protection is going to be. Best case scenario, great. Because pro formas, man, I've seen enough of these to where I don't have a crystal ball. No one does on cap rates, right? There's just no telling what's going to happen. A lot of these market forces are outside of our control. So I, I try to buy on, on really good fundamentals. And, and some of my mentors that I've really kind of respect and admire have given me some high level guidance and reviewed these deals with me. I had an attorney friend of mine go over the PPM with me, which is great fun reading. If, if, uh, <laughs> if any of you folks out there are ready to do that, good luck, have some coffee. Yeah. Um, operate for, heavy machinery. Oh my God. What's a cash call provision? Like, Oh my God, wait, they can do this or that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, be prepared. And they send it over in a PDF, so you can't redline it. So <laughs> you got to figure out if you're willing to to take the risk or not. The SEC stuff. I mean, how many how many times is that reference laying in one of those PPMs, right? Like five times over. This you may risk all of your money that you put into this. I mean, it's yeah, kind of like the all capital paragraphs, right? All yeah, capital. it's like a cigarette warning label, right? You know, <laughs> the same thing. But I guess what I like about it is like everybody signs the same thing. It's not like oh. Jason's buddy, buddy with them. He signs a little different one. It's all yeah, the same. He's ever, not ever. subject to the provisions that, that right. some, yeah, totally. Right. It's all, it's all, you know, kind of out there and, and everybody's signing every, it, it's all fair. It's all the same thing. Yeah, no, totally, man. I totally agree. Yeah. So as you maybe talk about a little bit of your due diligence process because everybody does it a little bit differently, you know, so you get an executive summary. What are some things that you're kind of looking at? So jumps with, on the page of you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love seeing the trailing 12. So I've read, you know, Brian Lindahl and, and Brian Murray. I'm sorry, David Lindahl and Brian Murray and, and some of my other friends that, that have and mentors that have helped me along the way. Like, hey, get that trailing 12, man. Buy on actuals. Make sure that you feel comfortable buying on actuals. I also want to know historically where cap rates kind of flow. And, and there's graphs that you can see on CoStar and stuff like that. And then occupancy, historical occupancy, which, again, some of that data isn't really accurate, but it's nice to know 
what the, you know, let's say 2008, 2009, what were, what were the occupancy levels in the San Antonio deal that I bought, bought into? And so I've got this really cool CSAM calculator spreadsheet. And so I take their numbers, their pro forma, and I kind of play around with the math, right? So one of the things that, that always bothers me on these pro formas is everyone's always baking in, you know, like it's super easy to get a 3% annual escalation, right? Or on revenue or on NOI, whatever they, you know, Hey, look, we're anticipating 5% annual escalation. So I, I've been around long enough to where I'm like, okay, maybe that's the case. Great. What's the probability of that happening? When I took my last CCIM class, we talked about a weighted average IRR. And so I take, you know, best case scenario, pro forma, historical and, you know, worst case scenario. And I kind of average them out. Right. And I, and I put a weight association to those. And so for example, the deal that I looked at with, uh, for, with Wildhorn, you know, they had, let's say an IRR close to 17. That's, that's awesome. I mean, anything from me, 16 to 18 is probably like the sweet spot. But if I had that thing performing at like a 14 IRR or maybe like a 13 IRR, I'm still going to be happy with that return. I'm not going to be thrilled, but I'd much rather have that type of return than put my money into, you know, an index fund that's going to generate, you know, historical average return of what, like seven or eight percent. So if I can double that comfortably, that was that was the big thing. And you know, I like the area too, Lane. I drove down there with my wife. I'm very familiar with San Antonio. I live in Austin, so it's like an hour drive. I looked at all the comps. I looked at the area. I really like the area for, for a few reasons. One, some of the biggest employers are within a three-mile radius. So you have the hospital down there, you have HEB, and you have USAA. All three of those are in close, close proximity, which means that area should always have some pretty good growth depending on, you know, I don't think the hospital is going to lay off a ton of people because they they're going to need that. It's a critical mass hospital. HEB's here to stay, although Amazon could come in and do some disruption, but they had two HEBs within a three mile radius. And then USA was right down the street. And, you know, I like the value enhancement, right? It needed it. I went and walked the property. I saw the leasing office. I mean, it looked super stale, man. It was straight out of the eighties, you know? Yeah. Is that um, the, the Woodbridge one? You're kind yeah. Of, the Woodbridge. Yeah. 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 I, went, I went there right before closing. It was definitely like there was bird poop on the railings. The railings were like kind of shoddy and it definitely looked like the, the seller was like, all right, I'm, I'm selling this. Peace out. Yeah, no, totally. Right. And they were making a good clip by the way. Right. I don't know what they bought it for, but I'm pretty sure they bought it at a pretty, pretty decent multiple. And just, I mean, look, they were just kind of doing what my old landlord used to do, which is just kind of milk that in a wine cash flow. You know, it's difficult to try, you know, trying to get happier than happy. You don't really need to, right. If you're, if you're that landlord and right. it at a, what was the uh, exit cap for him? What was it? I can't remember. Was it five and a half, six? Oh, I don't even remember these days. <laughs> yeah, I know you're in the like seven deals, so you don't know. But yeah, but the you know the idea of like, oh man, that's for for a you know B minus C plus asset in San Antonio to sell at that cap. I mean, they probably did really well. Yeah, I, you know, I think the only thing that was kind of concerning me about that one deal is like, you know, San Antonio is getting a little bit soft in terms of rent increases. Yeah. Um, you can kind of look at some of the big national reports and you know you're this is probably something really up your alley like for me it just seemed like things things are very like it's not reversing it's more just decelerating you know instead of seeing that three four percent increase it's like 1.5 1. 1. or 2.0 percent rent increases it was just was something to be aware of when i was talking to a lot of my peers about the deal 
I mean, that's how I do things. I mean, I think you're, you're on the inside, you get a lot of the data, you get a lot of the raw data firsthand, but for example, you're mentioning like the occupancy, you know, what are people using for in Dallas or San Antonio? For mm -hmm. me, it's kind of like, I just ask around and like, what are you guys using for it? Is it 90% or 89%, 92%? Yeah. It works, right? And, and it's a small part of the whole equation. That's why it's not really worth that in-depth thing. It just needs to not be like 95%. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I totally agree with you there. And, and I can tell you from looking at Amley reports, you know, we're more in the class A space. Yeah, NOI and revenue growth is... You know, I wouldn't say it's plateauing, but it's not growing at the rates that it was for the last, you know, six to seven years when we had a really, really good run, which is an uh, indication that the space may be a little bit overbuilt and, you know, everyone's trying to get those rent escalations up. But right. th you know, that's why I really like the the value add at this point right now in the cycle. I I would be really nervous to take on something that, that all the value has already been sucked out of and you're just, you're anticipating someone coming in and just managing it well and, and increasing rents. I think those days uh, have come and gone. I think you really have to think strategically with uh, your value add. Right. And I think, I think you guys are seeing it. Um, if you guys know Omni, we've been talking about that several times, but they're a class A developer. You know, a lot of the guys, single, you know, small families making, you know, pretty good wages. They'll go into these more luxury $1,500, $2,000 a rent, right? Kind of nice apartment buildings, nice yeah. pool, nice clubhouse. But what, what I was kind of kind of mention is, you know, you, you see this a lot in Seattle. A lot of the, the new high-end stuff that was built the last few years for the Amazon build-out, a lot of rent concessions, There, you know, where oh. it was used to be like what's, you know the numbers better, like 1600 now it's down to 1400 a month. Like they just can't oh. give away this stuff, right? It's crazy, man. And and we go, uh, I'll tell you, we go really with Amazon. We have to kind of, their, their, their hiring comes in waves, right? So like when, when we know for, when they're going to hire and, and when they do hire, we have this huge uptick in occupancy. And I'll tell you what we're also looking at doing. It's maybe not in Seattle yet, but it, you'll, will, you will see this as Airbnb and these other concepts kind of take more shape. You'll start to see some of these multifamily developers kind of dip their toes into high-end rentals with uh, third-party management groups. I think that's something to kind of keep your eye out on. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to enter too much in the Class B space. But um, anyway, we're, we're starting to see that trickle in. Yeah, on. yeah. And I think it, what's important for the listener that, you know, that's kind of listening in on this conversation is that a lot of a lot of the data that you see out there, a lot of the headlines, it's really focused around the Class A because that's really, it's really sexy and what's appealing and what yeah. most people see. But it's that, you know, the tip, that's the, just the tip of the iceberg. What's really underneath is all the class B and C stuff and D stuff. And, uh, you know, that's what the general population is. And, you know, like you mentioned before, that's the place you want to be to get away from all this oversupply is that class B and C space. Oh, totally. And, and I think, and Lane, I think I may have heard this on a previous podcast or, or maybe you were mentioning this, but I really like those rents that, you know, the working class folks kind of where I kind of grew up in, you know, more of a 800 to $1,200 rents. I think, I think they kind of give you some protection, inflationary and deflationary protection. Right. Those crappy cabinets that you and I are used to back in the day. Someone's Man, I'd still be happy with those cabinets. You know what I mean? Like if it wasn't for my wife, I could, I could live in some pretty bad situations. I think I still have those cabinets here in Hawaii. Here we live in like class C housing, but class a minus tenants it's very weird out here 
that's the God, everyone's a renter out there too, right? That's at least from from what I understand. Right. Really tough to to own anything out there. Yeah. So, um, any last you know kind of takeaways? You know, your path forward. Any last you know things you're kind of wondering? I mean, it seems like you got pretty good direction. What's kind of a like a takeaway from the listeners to maybe they may not be in your specific point or you know knowledge base or money or knowledge slash resources, but you're heading off into a different direction, maybe a reason why someone should not follow you and maybe a reason why someone should. Yeah, sure. I'll tell you, you know, for your listeners, I mean, if you, if you want to put money away, and this is kind of rich dad, poor dad stuff here, but bear with me. I'm sure everyone regurgitates this, but, you know, you put your money into the stock market, you're getting feed to death. So, you know, I would, I would look at your allocation and just kind of figure out what kind of risk you want to stomach. I mean, for those that are really risk averse, maybe maybe syndication isn't your path. Maybe you want to invest in, in, in real estate. But I think the, the power of income, depreciation, equity buildup, you know, and leverage, you just, you can't get that in the stock market if you're just a retail investor. Not even a REIT. Maybe. Yeah, not even a REIT. And so, and you're getting feed to death. Believe me, I, I we see it. So it, there's just so many advantages, but uh, I'll tell you the knowledge lane is, is one thing, but I'm a big believer in like your output determines your input, right? So like you got to get into action at some point. This isn't, you know, I think you have to build on momentum and, and you have to continue and really be passionate about this and, and put some time away to it and, and really make it a priority. But if it's important to you, I think real estate fits in, in a lot of people's models and it's, it's uh, shown again and again. I think you reference Lane a lot of times, The Millionaire Investor, the book. And I was listening to Jay Papazon, his, his podcast with you, but man, go back and listen to that thing. You know what I mean? I mean, so, so many great uh, nuggets of knowledge there. It really, that, that would be my one takeaway, guys. You know, real estate is a, is a fantastic vehicle. If you if you if you like single family duplexes and that's where you're passionate about, absolutely. But uh, try to get into action. I think there's a critical mass that I've reached through reading all this stuff, and it's like, okay, now it's now it's time to apply it. And, you know, one thing that's cool when I you know you guys call in, most of you guys are the high paid professional. Definitely, you know, definitely started a little bit, and I kind of just take into account your financial situation, and you know, it's just kind of yourself included in this you'll probably be financially free in the next, you know, three to seven years. So you might as well do something you enjoy. And, you know, something that was kind of, you know, interesting when you kind of showed me your story was that, you know, I definitely see a path forward for you as an operator. I mean, you're learning all this stuff at the day job, kind of screwing it up in somebody else's dime per se. (laughs) Totally pay with lost money, man. Right. And and it was kind of cool hearing you talk about, yeah, you know, I just take people out to lunch, you know, go down to this, this uh, retail center and, you know, do my thing and you know, it can do this like one or two days a week and yep. you know, get to meet cool people. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, here you are designing your lifestyle. So it'd be interesting to follow you how, you know, that trend kind of continues in the future. Yeah. And you know, I, I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm super passionate about this stuff. I get more out of helping people at this stage. Obviously I have to be selfish with my time and really kind of try to grow into that space. And, and eventually I'd love to come back on the show when, I'm, when I've got some deals in tow. Hopefully I've got them under contract and we can talk about all the fun stuff there. But if anyone has any questions or I can help them exclusively like on retail, mixed use, or just want to talk about kind of the syndication process, 
I'm happy to talk to you and, and add value any way that I can. You know, I give your email or website or whatever you got these days. Yeah, totally. So uh, Bigger Pockets is probably the easiest way to reach out to me. And if you haven't heard of Bigger Pockets, then you probably need to wake up a little bit. But, yeah, but um, you got to be careful. You don't become a BP bro on there. You know, these I, I'm not one of those guys, man. I'm, so company, though. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like the zero post guy. It's kind of embarrassing, but I just, I, you know, I really just like to connect with people and I, I hate just putting out content. I really like it to be dialed in and, and purposeful. And then the other is, is my, is my, you can send uh, an email to me at jason.ricks85 at gmail.com and ricks is R-I-C-K-S. All right, Jason. Well, I appreciate you coming on, kind of just kind of opening up to the folks and hopefully you guys got a little bit out of this. If you guys want to sign up for one of those free, very short coaching calls with me just to get to know each other, mostly to get to know, know each other and still sign up with that through the website. But uh, well, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thanks. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.